Okay, I'll be reading from Psalms 119, 41 through 48. May your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I can answer anyone who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Never take your word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings, and I will not be put to shame. For I delight in your commands because I love them. I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your decrees. This is God's word. You may be seated. This morning we uh, spent some time in a, a review of all of the things that our church was involved in in 2015. And tonight we want to continue thinking about the church and uh, before we do that, I want you to open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, we'll be looking about, uh, we'll start with uh, parts of verse 13, but really be looking at that prayer that, uh, that Paul prays for the church in Ephesus uh, there towards the end of the chapter. And uh, once you get that done, that's uh, bow our heads and join our hearts, and we'll ask God to bless us during our study. Father, so many times we pray to you about the church. And we pray about issues and problems and, and uh, mission of the church. And sometimes uh, we fail, Father, just, just to, to sit back and to thank you for the great blessings that come to us because of how you have called people together in your gospel and have put your spirit in them and have created a commonality as we are being through Your Spirit and through Your Word and through our fellowship with one another, being conformed, made into the image of Jesus in all that we do. I'm so thankful for the, the encouragement that, that comes to, to all of us in this church family because of the way that you, you build and create love in our hearts. I'm thankful for the wisdom that helps to shape our lives because of the experience that people have lived in Christ over a number of years and how that has not just shaped their, their vision for life and helped develop this spiritual ethic, Father, but has granted them uh, by Your power a wisdom, Father, that they're able to share with, with, with younger folk, Father, and those that are encountering problems and, and to bless them with that wisdom and that direction and that encouragement. I'm thankful, Father, for, for the ways that we see You bring healing into people's lives. And I'm thankful, Father, for the ways that we see uh, lives that are broken because of our own fallenness, the thorns and the thistles that have come into our own life because of our, our own decisions, sometimes because of the decisions of others, but how all of that brokenness is mended in part through the love that is expressed in our church family. And how that co-mingled with Your love, Father, makes all the difference in the world. In helping people to, to overcome obstacles, and uh, especially when those obstacles are pain and forgiveness and, and bitterness and disappointment. Father, thank You for all of the different ways that, that this church brings light into people's lives. And thank You, Father, for, for all of the ways that You help us to understand more deeply 
the, the, the benefits and the blessings of our faith and the greatness of purpose and significance that comes to us because we walk with You every day. And how all of that becomes, Father, a, a blessing to folks around us. Well, Father, as, as we think about Your church tonight, we, we pray that You will give us eyes to see this text and ears to hear it in such a way that we make all of the, the application and make all of the changes in our life that we need to. So bless us in this way as we study this great text. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all the church said, heard a story, uh, I've told you this story a couple of times, uh, but I heard a story about one Sunday morning, a fella gets up, and as he's having breakfast with his wife, he says he doesn't feel like going to church that morning. And she asks, why? I mean, you've gone to church, it seems like, every Sunday and every time the doors are open, ever since I've known you. And he says, I'll give you two good reasons. First, I don't get anything out of it. And second, those people don't really mean what they say. Why, they're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. And the right wife replies, well, I'll give you two reasons, two very good reasons why you need to go to church and you better go to church. First, it's God's will. And second, you're the preacher. <laughs> uh, again, we spent this morning going over all the things that our church was involved in over the past year. And I hope that it was very encouraging to you. But, but maybe... Uh, in 2015, our church might disappoint you. That there might be a period of time when what is and what should be is really going to seem like it's miles apart. That there are going to be times when the great vision that we are given in Scripture of what the church is supposed to be, that it begins to fade a little bit in your heart. Now, let, let me say this right now. One of the keys, I think, to walking successfully in the kingdom is to always keep your eyes focused on God in every circumstance in life, especially in those moments of, of disappointment and discouragement. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, as we were getting ready to, uh, to celebrate New Year's this last week, I had a, uh, somebody ask me, you know, have you made any New Year's resolutions? And I said, yeah, I make the same one every year. In fact, it's the same one that I make every day, and that's to be closer to God each day. I think that that's key to walking successfully in the kingdom is that having that sharp focus that regardless of what might come into your life, what come in, may come into that day, that your life will be focused on the presence of God regardless of what it is you're experiencing. And that's why I think that the New Testament continually encourages us to do that very thing. The New Testament is literally peppered with these kinds of texts, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. It's up here on the screen. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Those things that are eternal. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on, say it church, Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. The problem is this, when we take our eyes off of what we are becoming and where we are headed, that's when the vision of what the church is supposed to be doing in the community and in our lives and with each other begins to be frustrated and it begins to fade. And when you think about it, those, that reality is the result of, of probably, you can boil it down to three things taking place in, in life, there are three realities that frustrate our vision of the church. The first is pain. Uh, in, in the play, Much Ado About Nothing, Shakespeare has this line that I think is genius. He said, you know, it's really hard to be a philosopher and have a toothache at the same time. 
And he's right. Pain is just really debilitating. Pain is, 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 is something that just debilitates and at times can diminish you know, our vision and our, our happiness and the encouragement that we could receive. It just, it just does a number on it. It's difficult to maintain ideals and to maintain a lofty vision when your life is being dominated by pain or with worry or with anxiety or some kind of stress. I mean, when you think about it, over in the Old Testament, who is it that experienced the the greatest amount of disappointment and pain in life? Who is it? Job. A Job struggled with loss like none of us have ever experienced loss in this life. And there came a point when the Bible, who refers to him as the most righteous man in the land, says in chapter 3, verse 3 and verse 11, May the day of my birth, what? Perish. And the night it was said, a man-child is conceived. You drop down to verse 11. Why did I not die at birth and die as I came from the womb? You know, you have to be pretty blue. You have to be pretty down when you say, I wish my birthday had never happened. I wish that my eyes never saw the light of day. I wish that I was stillborn. Pain can do that to you. And then number two, people. You know, Sometimes people are the greatest blessing in the world, and sometimes people are just the greatest curse. And you know what I mean. There are times when people can come streaming into your life, and it's the greatest blessing ever. They helped you get over an obstacle. Somehow they said something at the right time when you needed to hear it that changed everything. They told you that, that an obstacle in your life was, was not insurmountable, that you could overcome it. Or they encouraged you with just the right words, what you needed to hear at that moment that allowed you to move forward. But then there are times when people just seem to well, just seem to get under your last fingernail. In 3 John verses 9 and 11, John is having to deal with this guy by the name of Diotrephes. And he says, I wrote to the church by Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he's doing, gossiping maliciously about us, not satisfied with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friends, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. You know, if you've ever known a Diotrephes, you know how that person can help Uh, fade and diminish the vision of the greatness of the church in your own eyes. But then number three, we have present uh, problems. The the things that we're dealing with right now. And this, I think in particular, is what concerns Paul as he's closing out this third chapter of, of, of Ephesians. He says in verse 13, I ask you not to be discouraged because of my what? My sufferings. My sufferings for you, which are your glory. Now, uh, Paul, as he's writing this, if we try to get into the mind of Paul for a minute, Paul is, quite frankly, is concerned with their hearts that they either are failing or they will fail. And they, you know, they will not believe all the wonderful things that he's already written about the church in this letter to the church in Ephesus. It, it's, it's a church that, because of his struggle, may lose its vision of the greatness of the church. And what is the suffering that he's going through? Paul's in prison. 
Somehow the message does not match. Paul has written in the first chapter all the great things that God has done to bring you into the kingdom. All the things that Christ has done to bring you into the kingdom. All the things that the, that the Spirit does to bring you into the kingdom. In the, in the second chapter, he talks about the fact that you were once dead in your transgressions, but now He has made you alive. That it's not by anything that you've done, but it's a gift of God. It's by grace that you have been saved. And that God is building people into a, 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 a structure, a place where his, He wants his, his, his Spirit to dwell. At the beginning of the third chapter, he says, you know what's happening when the church is the church and when everybody is living the life that they should be living? They're becoming these mini-Christs, to use C.S. Lewis's terminology, when they're becoming mini-Christs. He says, the church becomes a window in which not just people in the world, but those in the heavenly realms, those spiritual enemies of God, are able through the window that is the church to see their defeat, how sin is being reversed by God in human beings. But then Paul's in prison. All the great things of the church are not matching with Paul's present struggle, the fact that he is in prison. Now here's the thing. Paul could have deflated the church in Ephesus. I mean, he could have really deflated them. He could have whined and he could have complained about what was happening in his life, but he decided to do something different. He decided that he's going to take them to a prayer. He said, I, I know that what I believe about the church is not necessarily fitting completely and, and, and neatly with what I'm experiencing. And I know that that might, that might because of your not understanding, your, your, your love for me, that might diminish or fade the vision of the church, the disappointment that the reality is not meeting the vision. And so he takes them to a prayer of, of, about the glory of the church. I mean, Paul does not go out and bake a cake. He doesn't go bowling. He kneels down. And he says, and for this reason, I kneel. And the prayer posture, even though it's helping the church in Ephesus and us today to know that what he's doing in these circumstances is praying, the prayer posture is not the thing. I have, I have a really good friend, a guy by the name of Kim Self, um, who, who lives up in Canada, up in the, the Vancouver area. And he, but he's, he's a Cajun. He's from Louisiana. He said, one time... The best prayer I ever prayed in my life was while I was hanging by one arm from a windmill in Louisiana. The, 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 the prayer posture is not the point. The emphasis is that in light of His reality and in light of this great theology, the, uh, great theology of the church, the emphasis is that He prayed to God. He says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom His whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with what? He may strengthen you with what? Circle that word in your Bibles. That He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church. To Him be glory in the church. 
and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all the church says, Amen. Now, uh, this prayer is just absolutely rich, and we don't have time to unpack everything. Just two thoughts. Two thoughts. Two requests that Paul makes. Number one, he requests that God will strengthen the church with power through His Spirit. Verses 16 and 17. Now, up here on the screen, you're going to see uh, verses 16 and 17 with uh, red A, B, and C over it. And the reason for that is I, wanna, I want us to, to take this, this one ver- these two verses apart in such a way that we understand them better. And what it means is that I pray that out of His glorious riches, that's going to be the last thing we look at, but the first thing is this phrase, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So that, And the second thing we'll look at is that Christ... The Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, that first section that talks about may He strengthen you. Here's the irony. Paul, who appears powerless in a prison cell. I mean, he's, he's, he's in chains. He's in prison. He, he doesn't have you know, the right to, to, to do much without permission. Who appears powerless in a prison cell is praying about power. A power that he has and a power that they have. In fact, this is something that he has already done earlier in the letter. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great what? Power for us who believe. Now, now notice that he prays for this strengthening, this strengthening that comes from God to take place, to happen. To, to, to find fulfillment or fruition in the inner man. Now, what is the inner man? That's pretty important. That's where the powers, that strengthening is going to take place. What is that inner man? Well, in, in 2 Corinthians, there is a passage that employs the exact language that, that we find here that gives us a clear idea, I think, of what Paul is talking about. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Though outwardly, literally, in the, in, the, in the outer man, he says, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly, literally in the inner man, we are being renewed day by day. Now, that which wastes away, to use the biblical language, is that outer body. That which does not waste away, but according to second, uh, that is according to 2 Corinthians, but is being renewed daily, is this inner man. Now, I think that Paul's body, his outer man, was worn away under the onslaught of years of, of persecution and doing without and, and, and stress and turmoil and, and feeling the weight of the churches and the success of the churches and, and the success of all of those believers on his shoulders, that his outer man was being worn away by the onslaught of, of the years and the persecution and, and the trouble. But the inner man was what was left when the outer man was wasted completely away. It is that inner man... That is being renewed every day, 2 Corinthians, and strengthened by God's Spirit, Ephesians 3. Paul's request is that God's power come to bear in the domain of their lives where where character is shaped and where their lives are being prepared for eternity. And that's what he means. I mean, he doesn't really give us the nut and bolts on what happens with the strengthening of the inner man. I just believe that it happens in order to deal with the suffering, in order to deal with the turmoil, the adversity and the trouble and the the times of strife. But what purpose did that have? 
Why did Paul pray that the believers in Ephesus would know this power in the inner man? Well, the answer is found in the very next phrase, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That verb dwell is, is, a, is, a, is a very, it's, it's a gigantic word. It, it's a very strong word. It's, it's a very colorful word. Uh, one of the great New Testament scholars in the United States, a fellow by the name of D.A. Carson, writes that Paul's hope is that Christ will truly take up his residence in the hearts of the believers as they trust him. That's what through faith means, so as to make their hearts his home. Now again, how does that work? Well, an illustration. I think the idea is this. Everybody knows a young couple, or maybe you are that young couple, who save and save and save and save until you have enough money to buy a home. And usually the first home that you buy is not the house that necessarily you're going to live in the rest of your life. It's sort of an investment maybe uh, there at the very beginning. It's not the house that you're going to end your life in. It's probably a fixer-upper. And the reason that you buy it is because it's what you can afford, but it's going to need a fair amount of work to make it pleasant and to make it livable. You, you, you walk into the house and you, know, you can't stand the black and the brown and the gray paint that's on the bathroom walls. The, the grout around the shower is non-existent. There's evidence of water behind the wall. Uh, it, you, you, know, you, you see it and, and you, can, you can see the swell in the baseboards. You go down into the basement, basement it's unfinished. The electrical stuff is outdated. Well, you, you know, you get the idea. You've been in these houses. Yet, it's the first home. And this young couple, very, very thankful to have it. And the weeks that they move into it turn into months, and the months into years. And before you know it, the black and the gray and the brown paint in the bathroom gets covered with some kind of a tasteful pastel color. And a new shower is installed along with new baseboard. And the basement is finished off with a couple of uh, bedrooms and a game room for the children. The electrical is updated as well as all of the appliances in that kitchen. And the yard is landscaped. And the fruit trees have been planted. And 25 years after the purchase, the husband one day remarks to his wife and he says something like this. You know, I really like this place. It really suits us. Everywhere I look, I see the result of our labor. This house has really been made ours. I think that that's what Paul is is trying to to illustrate or to get at with the church in Ephesus and the church at MacArthur Park. When Christ takes up residence in our lives and dwells, dwells, not just just lives as as, as a tenant, but dwells as a resident in our lives, in our hearts, He finds many times the moral equivalent of the black and the gray and the brown paint in our heart. And on the walls of our soul, you know, he finds you know, rottenness and the thorns and the thistles. In other words, when he comes to make his dwelling place in our hearts, we are unfinished and in need of completion. We have holes that need to be filled. And Jesus begins to turn our inner man into a place that's appropriate for him, a place for him to dwell. Remember, that's the very thing that he was talking about in chapter 2. Now, although the language is different, I think the idea is the same as when Paul writes about Christ being formed in believers in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. Now, it is an awesome request to have our natural, spiritual, downward spiral reversed so that Christ can take up residence in our hearts. But here's the question that we want to ask next. 
are there adequate resources available for this to happen? I mean, you want to move into that house, but do you have the money to fix it up? Do you have the resources? Do you have the know-how? Are there adequate resources available for this kind of thing? Christ dwelling in our hearts for this to happen. Can Paul's request be answered sufficiently? Which brings us to the third phrase in this magnificent verse. He says, I pray, verse 16, out of His glorious riches. It's out of His glorious riches that all of this finds the resources to happen. He writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, My God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now Paul's first request is for power. Power to, to, uh, to, to, be, um, uh, to be a dwelling place for Christ so that their lives and our very lives are metamorphosized to act and to think in ways that are godly and holy. And God's purpose for the men and the women He redeems is not simply to have them believe certain truths, but to transform them in a lifelong process that stretches towards heaven. And then number two, that we might have power to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. I want to read verses 17, 18, and 19 again. It says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses what? Knowledge. It's a very interesting thing. To know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul does, does not mean that these believers have never known God's love for them. They are believers. They are Christians. They are disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. And he acknowledges the fact that they are rooted and established in love. That is a fact. But what is striking about this passage, this prayer, is that Paul clearly assumes that his readers need a greater dose of appreciation for the love of Christ for them. To have a better grasp of the love that Christ has for them. And this is not merely an intellectual exercise where we, 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 we diagram the sentences and understand the original language and we think and we think and we think and we read all the commentaries. It's not merely an intellectual exercise because his request is that they know this love that surpasses, verse 19, knowledge. For him, the love of God is not something you only experience when you are alone and in the right mood and frame of mind and everything is groovy. The love of God, as you know, the love of God, as you know, historically, was displayed on a hideous cross outside of Jerusalem a few decades before Paul visited Ephesus and then later would write this letter. What this prayer presupposes is that apart from the power of God, Christians will have too little appreciation for the love of Christ. And this is evident. I think we can all see this. This is evident in the fact that spiritual maturity and IQs are not always linked together. In another place, Paul writes that the world's geniuses don't always get it when it comes to the work of God in creation. In Romans chapter 1. In another place, he says uh, to the church in Corinth, he says, 
you know, a lot of really smart people look at the cross and they don't see love and they don't see redemption and they don't see God intervening and invading history. What they see is foolishness. What Paul wants, what Paul wants is for all believers to grasp something of the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. To know this love that surpasses knowledge. And he prays that they and we might have God's power in our life that this might be so. And the reason is this, that we might be mature. He says in verse 19 that you may be filled up to the measure of all the fullness of God. That is Paul's way of saying to be all that God wants you to be or to be like Christ in all things. That the knowing the love of Christ is linked to maturity in Christ or becoming like Christ. And this is an astonishing statement for Paul. Because all of our theological education, all of our years of, of, of experience, our traditions do not get us to the spiritual maturity. Now they help, but they do not get us to spiritual maturity as Paul would wish without knowing the love that Christ has for us by the power of God. Until, until He works that power in our life. Some years ago, I read this story that every time I read it, it, it just astounds me. It, it was uh, a story about a Christian family who provided some foster care for twin 18-month-old boys. And the first night that these boys are in their home, the boys are put to bed and not a peep comes out of the bedroom. And the, the foster parents, these, these uh, Christian foster parents, are curious. And so the father kind of creeps into the room to see if everything is going as smoothly as it seems because it's all quiet on the eastern front. And what he found was that both boys were wide awake. And that both of these boys were laying on pillows that were completely soaked in tears. But that neither one of them, even though they were crying, they were crying silently. They were not making any noise whatsoever. It was later learned that they had been beaten severely for crying in the nine previous foster homes that they had lived in during the first 18 months of their lives. Some testing had to be done, and it was done. And in the testing, it was determined that the twins were irremediably damaged, both emotionally and intellectually, and that, and, 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 and that there, was, there, was, there was no way that it would ever be fixed. And as it turn, turned out, these two Christian foster parents decided that these twins were to stay in their home. And there they stayed for a couple of years. And by the time they were adopted, they were judged to have moved into the normal ranges of emotional and intellectual health for children their age. And even to this day, in their 20s and late 20s and early 30s, they are functioning in incredibly healthy ways. Friends, there is something in the experience of, of, of love and especially the love of God that moves us forward in the development of becoming those many Christs, of becoming the people that God always created us to be, to be the kind of people that Paul has already told us in Ephesians chapter 2, we could never be on our own, but only by the grace of God, by which He receives all the glory. That, there, that there's something in this experience of love that moves people forward in their development 
The same is true in the spiritual arena. And just as a human being cannot enjoy normal maturation and develop into a mature person without the structure of love, disciplined love, in the home, so also a Christian who does not experience the love of God in Christ does not grow to full maturity. And that's the point of Paul's prayer. Is that the people in the church of Ephesus, well, even though there's tremendous suffering that's going on, that that suffering, those obstacles, what seems like closed doors, what seem like places for them to stub their toes, are not really anything that, that should diminish their ability to experience the fullness of Christ in their life. But Paul says that it's something that that comes from God's power. An experience of that love that comes into your life. And so what happens when the the vision for the church and the vision for your life as a disciple of Jesus begins, begins to diminish and to be frustrated and to fade? You pray. You pray to be strengthened. And you pray to have an experience of the limitless dimensions of God's love in your life. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. What song are we going to sing? We're going to sing the song Redeemed. What a great song. Because the, the redemption that we experience is not just forgiveness. But we are redeemed in order to end that, enslave, that enslavement that we experience to sin that we can't get ourselves out of. It's not just forgiveness of sins, but it's, it's the ending of, 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 of sin having having a master relationship in our life. It's not just being redeemed from from sin and, and that forgiveness in such a way that we don't experience hell at the end of time. It is a redemption where we are saved toward and unto God Himself as His children. Redemption is a wonderful thing. And it's in that redemption that we begin to taste those those first those first flavors of salvation. And what it means to live in the kingdom of God and to be adopted by Him and made heir of all things. If there's a way that our church can minister to you tonight, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds, our spiritual leaders, as we stand and sing this song together.